Today we're going to finish the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read just verses 11 and 12, and then we will talk about that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today my primary goal is to remind you that you need, yes you need, an intentional personal effort, you need challenging circumstances, and you need persistent prayer for help from God in order to become a person who is considered worthy of God's kingdom and who is counted worthy of your calling. There's two worthies in this first chapter, that we would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, and that we would be considered worthy of our calling. So combining those and uh, including them in today's teaching. Let's pray. Father, we continue to look to you to speak to us. You are the source of all truth. You are wisdom. You are the teacher, the leader. We are your children, your followers. Speak to us today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. This uh, first chapter of 2 Thessalonians presents three steps along the path to being considered worthy of the kingdom of God and being counted worthy of your calling. I'm not suggesting that these are the only three steps, but they're the three steps that are presented in this first chapter. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian believers here in verses 11 and 12, which I just read, is the third step of the three steps in the process of spiritual growth. I want to begin today by reviewing the first two steps, which precede this third step in chapter 1. And uh, then I want to reinforce the importance of the third step. The first step is found in verses 3 through 4, where Paul commends, praises the believers for having greater faith for growing in their love for one another and for persevering in the face of persecution and affliction. So if I was going to paraphrase these three qualities, my paraphrase would go like this. Greater faith is a growing and practical trust in God, His ways, His word, His provision, His protection, and applying that growing and practical trust in God to your daily living. That's greater faith. Growth in love is a measurable growth in the understanding of love and the practical application of love. 
I've given this example before, but it's a worthy example in my opinion, or at least it's easy to understand. When we first got married, I certainly loved Barbie for all the good things she did for me. Uh, and then when she wasn't doing such good things for me, I didn't love her so well. And learning, coming to an understanding of what love is, helped me understand that I needed to love her regardless, the same regardless, because that's what love is. So growth in love is a measurable growth in the understanding and practical application of love. Perseverance is remaining godly in thought, attitude, word, and deed. I include the idea of attitude, one of the scriptures that has had an effect on me over the years, not grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful, and in that context, it's a giver, but he likes a cheerful Christian, huh? How many things do we do grudgingly or of necessity? It's a bad attitude. So perseverance is remaining godly in thought, attitude, word, and deed in spite of mistreatment, unjust suffering, cruel hostility, and being hated and persecuted without a just cause. All right, those are three qualities that Paul praises or commends. And though God is our source of power and help for Christian growth, hopefully we all agree to that, neither faith nor love grows spontaneously or solely by God's doing. I wanted to use the word magical, but I don't know if you really understand how I use that. These things don't just appear in our life. We don't just get up one day and we're different. They don't grow spontaneously. They don't grow solely by God's doing. Both faith and love must be intentionally, thoughtfully, and repeatedly nurtured by those in whom they reside. In a similar way, perseverance, which is remaining godly when facing trials, mistreatment, cruelty, or injustice, Perseverance is never automatic, nor are those who persevere free of the temptation to respond with distrust or disapproval of God or respond with ungodly anger or the feeling like a victim. We don't just persevere again because we get up in the morning and decide to do it. One of the things that you realize if you try to help other people change is that it's one thing for them to know what they need to do. It's another thing for them to do it. So what, you know, why the distance? What happens between the knowing and the doing? Well, knowing is knowledge. Doing requires a whole lot of changing in more than one area. And that's where the work comes in. The reality is, we must be actively and purposefully involved in nurturing our faith and trust in God, in nurturing our love for those around us, and in feeding and nurturing perseverance in godly living. You have to be actively and purposefully involved. To be actively involved requires wanting, that's where it has to start, and choosing to be involved 
enough to make measurable and commendable progress. In other words, active involvement does not mean occasional or as time permits involvement, but rather intentional, planned, and persistent daily involvement. We all do this in some area of our lives, whether it's exercise or a job or taking care of a baby or whatever it is, we all know what it means to be actively involved in something, to commit ourselves to it, to do it day after day. Nowadays, we can even get apps and um, uh, internet type things and uh, what have you to help us be involved. But, whether you use those things or not, you have to be willing to do it, and to make the time to do it, and to protect the time to do it. That means purposeful involvement requires making a plan, protecting time to work your plan, seeking help, wisdom, and accountability from those who are more spiritually mature than you and continuing to do this until you either die or are so perfected in the Christian life that you don't need to do this anymore. I suspect all of us in this room will need to do this until we die. I don't know of anybody who's been perfected and not needing to do any of this anymore. God's word affirms this first step. This is not a unique idea to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul's word affirms this first step. And it affirms that it needs to be intentional, planned, and persistent if we are going to grow spiritually. I'm going to give you just four scriptures, starting with Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, it says, and we'll include the sisters... So then, all of us who are believers, we are under obligation. What does that mean? That means we have something that's owed. We're under obligation. We've made a commitment. We've agreed to something. We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Because if you're doing that, you must die. But we are under obligation to put to death By the Spirit, the deeds of the body. And if we do that, we will live. We are under obligation. We've made a commitment by coming to faith in Christ. We're under obligation to put to death. Who is the we? That's you. That's me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 12. Work out. Who's the person that he's talking to? You. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who has worked in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work it out. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 12 and 13. Uh, I know they're separated and there's a lot of good statements in between, but this, these two sections make the point. Colossians 3, 5 is, Therefore you put to death the members of your body that are on earth. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. 
and verse 12. And so as those who have been chosen of God, put on. Who's the, who's he talking to? You, he's talking to me. Put on a heart of compassion. Put it on. It doesn't just show up. You gotta put it on. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. And by the way, these are four scriptures that I've uh, worked at memorizing and living out the best I can in this life. So they've been really helpful to me. Uh, hopefully they can be helpful to you. 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee. Who should flee? I have to flee. You have to flee. Flee youthful loss. That's an activity. And it's not just walk away. We're talking about fleeing, running away. Remember the story of uh, Joseph in Potiphar's house? He ran out of the room. He fled. That's the picture. Flee youthful loss and pursue. Actively go after righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. All right, just to summarize, the first step in the process of growing spiritually is a step you already know about, just reminding you, it's the step of personal responsibility. Doing what God's word tells us to do in order to become mature Christians. And again, it doesn't happen spontaneously or solely by God's doing. We have to bring the human element to bear if it's going to happen. The second step along the path to being considered worthy of the kingdom of God and being counted worthy of our calling is found in verse 5. In this second step, God brings or allows trials, tribulation, sickness, suffering, and even persecution and affliction. God allows these things to come into our lives in order to mature and purify us. How about that? And though this step is hard and even painful at times, its outcome of spiritual growth and increasing Christian maturity is so valuable, at least in my opinion, that it makes the cost worth it. All right, here's the, the, the way it is. God often uses difficult circumstances and difficult people to take us from the initial act of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, take us from that initial act into and through the process of sanctification so that we become worthy recipients of God's gift of life now and throughout eternity. God does this. But you might be asking, why does God use difficult and even painful circumstances when he could miraculously and painlessly change us? Why doesn't he just do that? So I can think of several reasons, but just for the sake of today, I'll give you only two. First, difficult circumstances challenge our faith and test the strength and maturity of our trust in God. It's like going to school. 
Yeah, you can sit in class for a couple of weeks, but it isn't until the test that you find out what you've learned. So these difficult challenges to our faith uh, reveal how much we've grown in trusting God and his ways, how much progress we've made. These difficult circumstances test the endurance of our commitment, how much perseverance we have to live godly in spite of the cost or in spite of our failures along the way. Are we so committed that we'll get back up and keep going even if we fall? And the second reason that I'm going to give you today is difficult circumstances force us to choose God or self. God's way or our own way. Love or self-interest. Living by the word of God or living by the wisdom of the world. Seeking the pleasures and riches of God or seeking the pleasures and riches of the world. And these difficult circumstances force us to choose to depend on God's provision and protection or trust in worldly security. Now, so what, you might be thinking? Well, this is important because every time we choose God and godly living, we strengthen We actually strengthen our trust in God, our submission to God, and our love for God. We are getting stronger every time we make that choice. And at the same time, we're killing off more of our old nature. We're further weakening the power of our fleshly desires. And we are making progress in breaking ungodly habits that have ruled us for so long. There's a study done that infers, at least, habits takes at least three weeks to break a strong habit. At least. All right, so I don't have this same situation, but most of you have a full-time job, either in the home or outside the home. There's children, there's lawns to cut, There's uh, cars to take care of. There's people to see. You have all these activities. How devoted would you be in three weeks to break a bad habit? Would you go to a meeting every week for several hours to encourage you to break that bad habit? Or would you just kind of work at it? It takes time. But there's more to it than this. By repeatedly choosing God and godliness, we also establish and nurture godly thinking. How do you get to the place where you think godly? By choosing God and God's way over and over again. Because it not only breaks down the wrong way, it builds up the right way. This is happening all at the same time. By repeatedly choosing God, we establish and nurture right attitudes and values and beliefs and behaviors. This is what makes us new creatures in Christ Jesus. We don't become new creatures just because we've been born again. 
That's just the start. That's just the beginning of the path. We've just entered the narrow way. We become new creatures in Christ Jesus as we work out our salvation, as Paul wrote to the Philippians. The point here is that God uses difficult circumstances because they provide a testing, learning, and changing environment that exceeds all other such environments. How much do you learn when life is going your way totally? Mostly you're just basking in it. And that's good. Nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to learn, you got to be pushed. you got to be challenged. That's where the learning comes. We agree with that because we believe in the school system. It pushes, it challenges, it tests. I've talked many times about James 1, 2 to 4, so you already know that whole perspective. But I just want to add two other scriptures to that, those verses. James goes on to say in verse 12 of chapter 1, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Not when life is going good, but when life is going bad. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, counted worthy, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's a connection here between persevering under trial, being approved, and loving God. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Are you rejoicing at the trials? No, at the outcome. Verse 7, we rejoice because the proof, or the, as the result of being tested, the proof of our faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, that our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of the return of Christ. All right, to summarize the second step, God brings or allows us to experience trials, tribulation, sickness, suffering, and even persecution in order to further mature and purify us so that we live lives worthy of his kingdom and our calling. Why does it seem some of us suffer more than others? I don't know. I wish I had that answer. I don't know if it would help me understand more about life or if it would just give me the answer, but I don't know. My personal opinion is that each of us experiences God's efforts in our life to change us, and they are tailored to us. My experiences aren't necessarily yours, and yours aren't necessarily mine. And you may think I have a pretty good life, and that it's pretty easy, and maybe by comparison it is. But the things that God has brought into my life, the trials, the tribulation, the troubles, the challenges, have genuinely had an effect on me. I don't know if the things you've experienced would have had the same effect, but I do know that what God has done in my life has had an effect. 
The third step along the path to being considered worthy of the kingdom of God and counted worthy of our calling is found in verse 11. And the focus of this step is purposeful prayer. Purposeful prayer. When we were teaching on prayer several years back, I called it wise praying. Using a different word today in hopes that you think about it some more. So it's purposeful prayer that that seeks God's help, his empowerment, his wisdom, his leading, his personal fellowship in order to become a Christian who lives a worthy life. Verse 11 starts with these words, To this end also we pray for you always. Who is the we there? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So though this verse is about Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian believers, and I admit that, what I want to do today is apply it to us in two specific ways. First, I want to use it to promote personal prayer on behalf of your own spiritual growth, your own growth in godliness, your own growth in fellowship with God. If you want to grow, you got to pray for yourself. And second, I want to use it uh, to encourage us to pray for each other's spiritual development and growth toward Christian maturity in the same way that we pray for each other's physical health and healing, uh, or just as we pray for God's comfort and strength when one of us is struggling or suffering from some loss. So that's the idea. Pray for ourselves, pray for others. Paul begins by saying that he and Silvanus and Timothy pray always for the Thessalonian spiritual health and growth. In other words, in relation, and this is the point I want to get across at first, in relation to spiritual health and growth, these three gentlemen were relentless in prayer. And we should be true. This isn't praying just once. This isn't praying once a week. This is being relentless in prayer about our own and others' spiritual development and growth. In my opinion, relentless praying for our spiritual health and development is essential for at least two reasons, and there's more than this, but let me just give you two. First, praying relentlessly for the same thing until you get it, even if it takes a year or two, demonstrates that you are sincere and willing to persist until you obtain it. Jesus told the parable of the unjust judge and the widow who needed relief, and the widow kept going to the judge, and the judge kept doing nothing about it. And in the end, the judge did something about it, going to the judge over and over again, wore him down, and he finally said, look, she's going to drive me crazy, I must do something about it. Now, we're not driving God crazy, and that's not why he told the parable. He told the parable, it says it right after the parable, so that we would persevere in prayer and not give up. Praying relentlessly for the same thing until you get it demonstrates that you are sincere and willing to persist until you obtain it. On the other side of that, how many times have you prayed for something and then within a week forgotten about its importance to you? Something spiritual or something that you know needs to change in your life. You get caught up in the busyness of life and it's out of your mind and you stop praying about it. 
I say this only as an example of something that I've done to persist in prayer. doesn't make me a better person. doesn't mean I've done something wonderful. But I calculated that I prayed for at least 10 years that God would teach me to live according to love. And I prayed that long because I didn't feel like I had made much progress until after 10 years of praying that. To me, that's an example of persistence. I wanted that. I prayed for a number of years, probably five years, that God would show me my pride. So when I talk about persisting in prayer, this is what I'm talking about. The second reason that we should pray relentlessly about spiritual growth is that growing in godliness in one area almost always requires, so listen carefully, almost always requires making changes in other areas. So you want to change this one area? My point is, it almost always requires making changes in two, three, four, five other areas. And this adds to the time it takes to change the one area you want God to help you with. In other words, it slows the process down. That's my point. And that's a reason to keep on praying. Praying for yourself, if it's a personal growth you seek, or praying for others as you ask God to work in them. It isn't just making one change in you. To make that one change, most often, I'd like to say always, but I I won't. Most often it requires changing several other areas as well. You know, God may be at work right from the start of your praying. But he could be at work in ways you don't see because you are unaware of the number of changes required to make the one change that you're praying about. He sees it, you don't. So I want to encourage you to keep on praying. Paul's focus in the rest of verse 11 is on praying for specific areas of spiritual growth. And I just want to talk about these two, but I want to make the point that we need to be specific in our praying. The first request that Paul makes is about God growing us in godliness to the point of being counted worthy of our calling. To be counted worthy of your calling is to be so changed that you live a life that is, at least in God's estimation, worthy of the price he paid to save you, to sanctify you, and to reconcile you to himself. This is like asking God to conform you to the likeness of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever started that prayer in your life, Lord, conform me some more to the image of Christ. But if you have prayed that, then my guess is, and if you've persisted in praying it, my guess is your experience is similar to mine, and that is things start to happen and life gets pretty tight and pressured and you just... Maybe finally say to God, okay, back off for a month. Just give me a month's break. Let me breathe, and then I'll go back to praying this. Why? Why is it like that? Because to be conformed to the image of Christ requires a lot of changes in a lot of areas. It's a big job. 
Well, being counted worthy is just like that. It's a big job. So when you make a request like this, you're asking God to put you through an educational process that will challenge you, push you to what feels like your limits, require you to die to self and die to things you love and value, but shouldn't. It will test you. It will require serious perseverance from you. And that perseverance is especially challenging when you feel like you're making no progress at all. And you will feel like that at times. Okay, my goal in telling you this is not to discourage you. It is a hard road. But it's not to discourage you. It's to warn you in advance about what lies ahead in hopes that this knowledge will motivate you to persevere to the end. And if you pray this for others, and you ought, then I want to encourage you to be available to encourage and support them as they are taken by God through this challenging process of change. Because they're going to feel the pressure just like you feel the pressure. The second request made in verse, in this verse 11, ask God to empower and bring to completion every specific desire you have to be godly and every specific effort you make to do God's will. What you're doing is you're saying, God, look, empower and bring to completion this desire, this effort. That's a good prayer. So I want to ask you, what desires for godliness do you have? That's a serious question. I don't know how much you've thought about it, but what specific desire for godliness do you have? Is there a sin that easily tempts you from which you want freedom? If so... Do your part. Know that God's going to test you. And pray a lot. Do you want to be free of a godly fear? An ungodly anger? Ungodly attitudes? Ungodly speech? Is it your desire to be free of encumbrances that get in the way of devoting time and energy to growing in godliness? Are there activities you're involved in that you don't need to be involved in that you could better use that time to pursue God and godliness? Do you desire to know God's will generally and when possible, specifically? Do you want godly wisdom? Do you desire to love your spouse or your children as God loves you? Do you desire to serve others, to seek the good of those around you, to come to the aid of the needy and hurting, or to improve your efforts at evangelism? What is it you desire? In whatever move toward godliness that you desire, do you also desire for God to walk hand in hand with you 
Do you want to live in that realm of fellowship with God? If you persist in prayer as you seek to grow in a specific area of your life, and if you treat God as a father who is going through this with you, hand in hand, you will nurture intimacy with God. It may take some number of years before you realize the effect that this has on your life and the reality of the relationship that you've gained, but you will nurture it and eventually get there. If you will persist in prayer as you seek to be changed. You desire God to empower and bring to completion not just the changes in your life, but the ways that you're serving others? Do you want God to be in that as well? Then you need to pray about that. Verse 12. Why would we do all this? So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Godly Christians bring glory to God and to our Lord Jesus Christ in two ways. First, living a godly life makes the Lord Jesus look believable and therefore trustworthy to the unbelieving world. What hurts the image of Christ so much? Is it not hypocrisy? Is it not calling ourselves Christians and living something less? Living godly makes the Lord Jesus look believable and therefore trustworthy to the unbelieving world. And second, living a godly life makes the sanctifying, mind-transforming, and behavior-changing work of our Lord Jesus look real which makes his teachings look realistic. You want people to believe that God is alive and actually works? Let them see the changes in your life. The quality of our spirituality has a profound effect on how the world sees God and how the world sees his son, Jesus Christ. For me, this truth adds meaning to Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. For not one of us lives for ourselves. We don't just affect only ourselves in the way we live. And not one of us dies for ourselves. For if we live, we live for the Lord. God, Jesus Christ. Or if we die, we die for the Lord, for his reputation, for his honor, for his glory. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Okay, as I stated at the beginning, though God is our source of power and help in times of trouble, neither faith nor love grows spontaneously. And it doesn't grow solely by God's doing. The human element is vital. It is vital. 
in spiritual growth and Christian maturity. Never ignore that reality. However, in spite of the necessity of human human involvement, the human element, without God's gracious empowerment, without God's provision, without God's promises, without God's help, there cannot be. I mean that sincerely. There cannot be commendable, measurable, sincere, heart-purifying, mind-transforming, and life-changing spiritual growth. We can make changes through self-help. We can make changes by getting wiser, learning new things, working at uh, changing our speech and our behavior. People come and ask for help, and, and they want to be changed, and I can show them how to talk better. I can show them how to behave in some different ways, especially in a marriage. But in the end, nothing really changes until they change from the inside, until they change their beliefs and change their values, because that's what affects their behavior. We need God. We need God's help. We need God's wisdom. We need God's direction. We need God's word. And to me, Jesus clearly states this in John fifteen five. I am the vine, he says. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears fruit. Where does the life come from? It comes from the vine. I have to be a viable branch. I have to be a cooperative branch. I have to do what branches are supposed to do. Let us not negate that or despise that or treat that as if it doesn't matter. But the truth is, apart from God, apart from Christ in you, you can do nothing. We need that life in us. And so, we must have God's involvement every day, the rest of our lives, which makes this third step so important. Persisting in prayer, praying always for your growth in godliness and the growth in godliness of those around us.